Welcome back to our Old Testament Bible history series. This is lesson 27, Jacob Comes to Joseph. We will finish our study of the book of Genesis by looking at chapters 46 through 50. This is a wonderfully touching story about the reunion between a father and a son. I have a question for you. What's the first thing you remember? For me, I am convinced that my earliest memory is the time I visited the grave of my God-fearing grandparents with my father. This visit and the words my father spoke to me made a serious impression on me as a young boy. If I had to pick the highlight of my grandparents' life, it would have to be their death. This is because at this time they received their eternal reward. In this story, we're going to witness Jacob's death. I, I think that Jacob's death is also the highlight of his life. I say this because it is the event that is recorded beside his name in the Heroes of Faith chapter. Hebrews 11, verse 21, you'll find it there. The last time we met Jacob was when the wagons, sent by his long-lost son Joseph, arrived to carry him to Egypt. Listen to Jacob. He says, Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. And so one more time, Jacob prepares to take another long, life-changing journey. And this time, he will be traveling as a guest of honor ahead of his family of about 70 children and grandchildren. When they arrive in Beersheba, God appears to Jacob and repeats the same promise to him again. I will be with you. Do not be afraid to make the journey into Egypt. God promises Jacob that he will go with him and that there is nothing to fear. Their future is secure in God and in his promise. And so the great caravan of people, wagons, and animals move south and west. Everybody is suffering because of the famine. Can you imagine how eager Jacob must be to see his favorite long-lost son? This caravan cannot move fast enough for him. As they get closer to Egypt, Judah is sent ahead as a messenger to Joseph to let him know that his father is approaching. And Joseph commands a chariot and races out to meet his father. Jacob climbs down from the wagon. The chariots come to a stop. The Egyptian soldiers stand at attention for this very solemn occasion. Father, my dear son Joseph, there are no words for this emotional reunion. Joseph's brothers are very impressed as they watch their father and Joseph. 
as they watch them weep in each other's arms. Jacob holds his son and says to him, Now let me die, since I have seen thy face, because thou art yet alive. Jacob must have prayed for years for this to happen. After all, those dreams from over 20 years ago showed that Joseph would be the ruler of the family. And here, Joseph was alive, and God's promise was not broken. Jacob felt he could have no greater joy in his life, and he could now die in peace. Eventually, they arrive in Goshen, a part of Egypt. Here, there were not very many people living, and there were good pastures for their flocks. Twice in Genesis 47, it is called the best of the land. This is a good place to settle for a family of shepherds. And Jacob lived another 17 peaceful years in this place. He really felt like the Lord had given him everything he had asked for. Joseph visited his family every so often, still doing his work as governor of Egypt. And it wasn't long before Joseph invited his father to return to the capital city with him to meet the Pharaoh. And when the mighty Pharaoh was introduced to Jacob, the most amazing thing happened. This mighty Pharaoh gets up off his throne, descends the steps, and greets old Jacob. The whole Egyptian court is just amazed when their mighty Pharaoh bows before this simple shepherd. Jacob raises his arms and blesses the Egyptian Pharaoh. The years pass by, and now the time has come for Jacob to die. He's 147 years old and getting weaker. Joseph hears the news, and he brings his sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, to visit their dying grandfather. While Jacob lived peacefully in Goshen, and he knew he would die here, he knew this was not the land that God had given him. The land of Canaan had been promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and also to himself. He trusted God's covenant promises that they would come true. He knew Egypt was not really home. Canaan was where Abraham and Isaac were buried, and that's where Jacob wants to be buried also. Joseph promised his father he would make sure this happened. Now Jacob turns his attention to his grandsons. He adopts them as his own sons, which increases their honor and their future inheritance in the family. So instead of Joseph getting one portion, his sons both get one portion. This means that Joseph actually, as a father, gets a double portion because of the honor given to his sons. Come on, boys, kneel in front of me here so I can bless you. Jacob puts his arms around them and he kisses them. And he looks at Joseph and he says, Joseph, I did not think I would ever see you again. And here God has also showed me your sons. 
If you read these verses again at the beginning of chapter 48, you can read that Joseph introduces his sons as those whom God has given him. Jacob agrees and he says, yes, God has showed me these sons. Together, they're so satisfied in God's goodness. Jacob not only sees his son, but he also sees his grandsons. Manasseh, the oldest, he kneels at Jacob's right hand. Ephraim, the younger, he kneels at Jacob's left hand. And imagine Joseph's surprise when his father crosses his hands and places his right hand on Ephraim's head and his left hand on Manasseh's head. Jacob was guided by God to know that in the future, Ephraim's family would be greater than Manasseh's family. You will remember that the birthright went to the oldest son. The birthright would be the privilege of a double portion or getting twice as much inheritance as your brothers. The birthright also included future rule over your family. Included in this was the spiritual promise that the future promised seed, the Savior, would be born from your family. In this family, that was Reuben. But Reuben lost the birthright because of his wicked actions. And here we see that the birthright is given to Joseph. In his sons, he will get two future tribes and two sections of land in the future nation of Israel. But the other part of the birthright, future rule and dominion, that would be given to another one of Jacob's sons. Soon the circle around Jacob grows larger as the other sons come to the bedside. They wait for their father's blessing and parting words to each of them. At this point, Jacob is guided by God to be able to see what was in the future for each of his sons. It was like he could see the time far in the future when his family would move back to Canaan as a very large and mighty nation. He knew that from Judah's family would come the kings that would rule this nation. Judah, he says, your brothers will praise you and bow before you. Judah will hold the royal scepter and his descendants will always rule. Nations will serve him and bring presents to him. You know, Jacob was especially guided by God here to look ahead to the ruler, the redeemer, the Lord Jesus, who would be born out of the tribe of Judah. And then the brothers could see their father's face shining with such joy when he could see that this redeemer would also pay for Jacob's sins. This was especially clear when he cried out, I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord. Jacob knew that he had a place in the kingdom of this great ruler who would come one day. 
All of the other brothers also have a word from Jacob, but I have just mentioned Joseph and Judah here. Joseph was given the double portion in the adoption of Manasseh and Ephraim. The place of ruling the family was given to Judah. And with this, the promise of the future savior that would come from his family. Jacob dies. And all of Egypt mourned for him 70 days. His body was embalmed and brought back to Canaan by Joseph and a large group of Egyptians. Jacob is buried in the same cave as Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Rebekah. Jacob's last wish is granted. The brothers continue to live in Goshen, but Something bothers and worries them. They think, maybe Joseph is now going to take revenge on us after our father has died. He might punish us for our wicked behavior against him in the past. And so they send a messenger to Joseph to make sure that he has forgiven them. Well, when Joseph hears this, he was so disappointed. What? Do my brothers still not trust me? Joseph weeps because he was so sad that they still were suspicious of him, that they still were not convinced of his love to them. He also weeps because he was moved by their submission and their willingness to be his servants. The brothers in front of Joseph, they come and bow before him. We will be your servants, they say. But listen to the kind words of Joseph. He has such a model of forgiveness here. He says, don't be afraid of me. Fear not. Am I in the place of God? You meant evil with your actions, but it was God who meant good to come out of it. It was part of his great plan to keep us all alive. Joseph comforted his brothers and promised to care for them and their families in the future. When Joseph reached the age of 110, it was time for him to die. In faith, he commands them to carry his bones from Egypt when the family would return to Canaan. He too wanted to be buried in Canaan. Hundreds of years later, when the family returned to Canaan, Joseph's remains would be carried along. This brings us to an end of our story. Together now, let's try to make a few connections to what this story tells us about who God is and what he does. First, let's consider how Joseph resembles and how Joseph is a picture of the future savior. As Jacob and his family travel from Canaan to Egypt, they're poor and starving. They're going to Egypt because there is the promise of food there. But the Egyptians need the food for themselves and they do not like shepherds. The survival of this small nation of Israel is completely resting upon Joseph's favor towards them. The only reason they would survive there is because Joseph is the governor 
and the Pharaoh of Egypt would for sure listen to Joseph. Their place in the kingdom of Egypt depended on Joseph. A Christian today also considers that their place in the kingdom of heaven depends entirely on the person of Jesus Christ. Only in Jesus are we acceptable with the Father. Second, let's read together Genesis 47, verse 25. And they said, Thou hast saved our lives. Let us find grace in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. The people saw Joseph as their savior, and he was their savior. Those people were missing grain, and Joseph had exactly what they needed. The people had to pay for it eventually by promising part of their future harvests to Pharaoh, a tax kind of. Joseph has turned these people into willing servants. Now, think with me for a moment of a poor and a starving sinner who has no righteousness but only guilt and sin. They know they miss God and cannot meet God as they are. Now when Jesus presents himself to them, they see in him the perfect righteousness they miss. They see in him the payment for sin they cannot provide. Then they see him as their savior. Jesus offers himself the bread of life for free, without money and without price. The Lord Jesus also makes those who believe in him to be willing servants of God. And then they're willing to do God's will and they're willing to be his servants. I hope it's clear why the Lord Jesus Christ is sometimes called the greater Joseph. Third, what do we learn about what God does in these chapters? God makes everything serve his purpose, even those events which were meant for evil. God's purpose never changes. He didn't have to kind of think up another plan for about how to fix these evil events. No. God decided everything that would happen even before the world began. Soon we will see more evil things happening to this family when they are in Egypt. The Pharaoh will become incredibly evil towards them. But... In Exodus 9, verse 16, God tells Pharaoh, For this cause I have raised thee up, for to show in thee my power, and that my name may, may be declared throughout all the earth. Yes, God's purpose is that his name is declared everywhere, and that Jesus Christ may be Lord. His purpose is that the name of Jesus, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow 
and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Genesis, the book of Genesis, we have been introduced to God as a promise-making God. In Exodus, we are going to see him as a promise-keeping God. It all centers around God and the covenant that he made to Abraham. In Genesis, he makes this covenant because he loves his people. In Exodus, he keeps this covenant because he loves his people. And it is also out of God's love that he later sends his only son to this earth. In our next lesson, God heard their cry. We will start to learn more about God as a promise-keeping God.